From the Gospel according to Matthew, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now a reading from the book of Ecclesiastes. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of everyone, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of countenance the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And a reading from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. The word of the Lord. Well, a subject matter on mourning. So do I begin this morning with talking about Riley Howell, who gave his life in order that others might live? Or so close to home, Lori Kay, who stepped in front of the rabbi, saving his life, but her own was taken. About the flooding that goes on everywhere and lives taken. About the two minutes of silence yesterday as six million Jews were remembered who had perished in the Holocaust. We are in a world of hurts. We are in a world that experiences mourning so often and in so many ways. And yet, today we come to the text, the second of the nine Beatitudes that say, blessed is though, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is good news for us. What does that good news look like? How can we be in the midst of so much tragedy and see God's comfort? Well, let's look back at scripture. I want to walk through briefly just Matthew, look at Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, and then come back to Matthew. In the Beatitudes, Jesus has just spent time with hordes of people, touching them, healing them, casting out demons. He has spent time and a journey doing that. And then he goes up into the mountain and begins to teach them. Now what Jesus is doing from the very beginning is he's telling people, this is the kingdom of God present and coming. See, because the healing was a sign of the kingdom coming. And then Jesus sits as a person in authority would do. Just so you know, pastors still have to sit, stand. We're not there yet. But in the Hebrew tradition, if you're a person of authority, you sit down to speak. So he sits and the people gather around him. And he begins to tell them, beginning with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
And I think about the morning and what is it that we mostly think about first is probably our own morning, things that we've gone through. Not only a loss of life, but maybe a loss of dream, a loss of what we thought things might be. And also collectively, how we as a community think about the loss of a life that was meant to be so good before we sinned and how far away we are. When I think about mourning and how we come alongside people, we know it happens to everyone, but we're never really quite prepared. We're never really planning on it. And yet that's the very word that Jesus used to bring us comfort. Blessed are you who mourn. It's something that we're, it's a condition that we're in, but you will be comforted. I don't know anyone who's gone through divorce that goes, wow, yeah, I really planned on doing that in my life. I thought I'd just get married, and a couple years down the pike, I just get divorced. divorced. Woohoo. It's a painful journey. People didn't plan on it. There's a pining for the things that didn't happen the way that we wanted. There's also a pining when we realize how far away we are from what God wants in our lives. There's a sense of mourning that we all go through. Now, Ecclesiastes is a book written by a preacher, and there are many discussions on who wrote it. I don't want to go there. But he has this, a couple of themes in there. One is to talk about meaninglessness and the futility of life and vanity. All is vanity. All is just, it's meaningless. Nothing's really great. And then he also talks about joy. So go out and eat and drink and enjoy all the days that God has given to you. Those are good things. Appreciate that. Those are his two big themes. But then in the midst of it, he talks about death. And he keeps bringing death up. Like, what is with this Debbie Downer that he keeps talking about death? But the reality is, is that death is inescapable. Every single one of us will die. Everybody dies. And for the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he does not want us to forget that. And yet we're in a country and in a nation and in a world that doesn't like to talk about death. We say people have passed away. They've gone to the other side. They're no longer here. Now, our family are dog people. If you know us, you know this. And on Easter, we lost our nearly 15-year-old dog, Ziggy. And we were in a world of hurt. We just loved this dog. But it was at Easter dinner later, because you always have friends when you're mourning. You always bring those people around you. And we're at Easter dinner, and a little girl sitting at the table, and all of a sudden she goes, where's Ziggy? And she jumps up, and she begins to call his name. And she runs up the stairs looking for Ziggy. And she runs down the stairs looking for Ziggy. And about this time, her mother's eyes are as big as quarters going, I really didn't have an opportunity to tell her. So she takes her to the side, and she just kind of explains to her that Ziggy died, that he's gone over to Doggy Heaven or the Rainbow Bridge or wherever, you know, Ziggy died, honey. So she comes back in. She's kind of little girl. She kind of wipes her eyes. She sits down. She goes, I'm sorry about Ziggy. 
When's he coming back? <laughs> That's why we don't like that word death. There's something final about it. The sad news and yet news that is redemptive. I read from you a, a piece written by a Jesus promoter. It strikes me today, this was written on Ash Wednesday, that the liturgy of Ash Wednesday teaches something that nearly everyone can agree on, whether you are part of a church or not, whether you believe today or you doubt, whether you are a Christian or an atheist or an agnostic or, or a so-called nun whose faith experience far transcends the limits of that label. You know this truth deep in your bones. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. Death is a part of life. My prayer for you this season is that you make time to celebrate that reality and to grieve that reality and that you will know that you are not alone. This was written on Ash Wednesday and this woman died yesterday at the age of 37 from complications of a flu. But in life and in death, she knew the comfort of faith. She knew and believed and walked in that. So we turn to Isaiah. And Isaiah said, the servant, the Messiah, has come and he's bringing good news. Not just talking about good news, not just proclaiming it, but the Messiah is the good news, is the one that's going to take from whatever tragedy is faced in our life or whatever causes us mourning, and, they're going, and he's going to come with the promise of taking whatever ashes we're left in. The tradition of the morning was to sit in ashes and clothe yourself with ashes. So the imagery, if you look back in your scripture, it's to take from the ashes and exchange it for garland. Beauty for ashes. The oil to anoint us. To give praise of righteousness. The Messiah comes to change whatever mourning has been for us and make it into gladness. The depth that we have felt brings us the life of the hope because the Messiah comes to bring us comfort. And that's the thing with mourning that we mourn differently than anyone else, than those who do not yet have faith. We may all know we die, we may all face that, but it's in our faith in Christ that we have that comfort. How interesting that we have a joyful feast for someone who was slain on our behalf. So whether you grieve the loss of a loved one, you grieve the loss of a dream, you grieve the own sin in your life, we are mourners, and that is a plural word, mourners. I think about the kingdom present and what it should really look like for you and for me and for those out there who maybe feel that they're in the midst of mourning marginalized. 
Israel certainly felt marginalized in Isaiah. All that they had hoped for had been taken away. The preacher was obsessed with trying to teach his students that everything dies, so dwell in that house that you might understand the gladness that you experience in the life that you have. And Jesus, after healing people, said to them, blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. I don't write often and I don't share often, but I'm going, and I can't do it without reading it, so forgive me. I'm going to read something I wrote after watching a movie, The Greatest Showman. Yes, it had Hugh Jackman. Makes all the sense in the world to you. But the context of the movie, The Greatest Showman, for me begins with the reality that ever since Jordan, who is our son, who has Down syndrome, was born, I have watched people stare at him. I know it is not because he is handsome, friendly, warm, and gracious, although those are very accurate attributes of who he is. No contest. No, it is the small, flat head. It's the ears that stick out his protruding tongue and the fact that he gets so excited he talks a mile a minute and nobody, not even his parents, have a clue what he's talking about. And his gesticulations are wild and enthusiastic and I watch. From infancy, from infancy his very being often creates a wide berth around him as if he might be contagious. I have become accustomed to people walking around him, avoiding him. For forever, it seems, I have observed parents staring at him alongside children. Someone once said to me, you know, Jordan doesn't seem to mind that people stare at him. He is always so happy. And I responded, that doesn't make it right, does it? So the story of P.T. Barnum, which is what the movie's about, The Greatest Showman, on the silver screen begins for me with the very first snide comment. The ugly injustices and even applied, appalled looks at those who are different, both physically as well as economically. My heart is pierced. I continue to watch the movie because, again, it has Hugh Jackman in it. but I watch it through tears. Now, I love the movie, I love the choreography, I love the songs, I love everything about it, but what I observed in the movie that touched me the most was the demonstration of the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about in Matthew, the kingdom of God that you and I get to experience. It's for the misfits, the outcasts, the lonely, the one whose world, friends, and family have shut them out. It's for those who don't, have friends because they're grieving and they don't know what to do with people who mourn so they avoid them. That's who the kingdom's for. The true story of P.T. Barnum, which is documented in Smithsonian, has the line, circus. He's created a circus. And I think it rings true because of community. It was created for those who had none. And that's what our kingdom of God does. They had family together. Kingdom presence doesn't make excuses for bad manners. 
for uneasiness with the odd, the different, and the deformed. The kingdom of God sees the image of God in those who the world would reject. God's heaven welcomes, embraces, and celebrates. Celebrates, especially those who mourn. For they will be comforted. They will receive a garland for ashes, an anointing of oil, a praise of righteousness. From the promise of Isaiah to the Beatitudes, this table is for all who mourn. It is a joyful feast for the people of God. And they will come from east and west and north and south to sit at table that the Lord has prepared. Everyone is invited to the table in Jesus Christ who gave himself for us the ultimate comfort. Pray with me, please. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for it is truly right and our greatest joy to give you that glory, that honor, that praise. You are our eternal God, our creator. You have given us life and second birth in your spirit. Once we were no people, but now we are your people. You claimed Israel as your chosen nation and raised up the church as a witness to the resurrection breathing into it your life and power. From worlds apart, you gathered us together. When we go astray, you welcome us home. Always your love has been steadfast. You are holy, O God, of majesty, and blessed is Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. In love with you and in compassion for all, Jesus healed and taught, challenged and comforted, welcomed and saved. He formed a community promising to be with his disciples wherever two or three were gathered and sending them on the mission of hope and healing in the world. Jesus trusted his life to you and went freely to death so that the world might be set free from suffering and sin. You raised him from death and raised us also to live new life with him and the power of the Holy Spirit. You send us out to be disciples. Lord, remembering all the mighty and merciful acts, we take this bread and this cup and we give thanks. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these gifts that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and the blood of Christ. For by your Spirit, unite us with living Christ, with all who are baptized in his name, that we may be one in ministry in every place. As Christ our Savior taught us, Lord God, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.